Our scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. First, however, let us pray. Gracious God, open our eyes, unstuff our ears, and fling wide open the doors of our hearts, that we might hear your voice this day. Amen. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward he was famished. The tempter came to him and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him at the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their, hand, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him and suddenly angels came and waited on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Depending on your background, you may recognize these words as coming from the movie The Usual Suspects, or as coming from the French poet Charles Boudelaire. One of them borrowed from the other. I'll leave you to sort out which is which. Now, I don't know what you think about the devil. To be honest, I'm not entirely sure what I think about the devil, not fully. Now, I don't imagine a red costume and pointy ears and a tail and a pitchfork. That, well, I wish that were the case. If all we had to do was look out for the little red guy, that would be pretty easy. He would be readily identifiable and therefore much easier to avoid and resist. Unfortunately, that is far too simplistic a view of the devil. Biblical scholars and theologians have wrestled with this for ages, for far longer than I have been alive, but the perspective I find the most compelling is understanding the devil as the embodiment of evil. Evil is alive and well in this world, and it is actually far too pernicious to make the mistake of always showing up in the same outfit, cracking the same jokes, exploiting the same vulnerabilities. Now, sometimes evil is obvious. Other times, it is as subtle as a well-timed wink. Sometimes we recognize evil when it's right in front of us, and other times we recognize it only in the rearview mirror. And sometimes, 
Sometimes evil is external and systemic, and other times it whispers to us right from the inside. All of this is to say that whenever the Bible talks about the devil, we need to take it seriously. We ignore the embodiment of evil at our own peril. And even if you don't find my perspective persuasive, even if you understand all of this devil talk completely differently, I imagine that we can agree on this much. Jesus took the devil very seriously. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all tell us this story. And though there are plenty of places that these three synoptic gospels disagree on the order of events, all three of them are consistent in this regard. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness right after he is baptized and right before his ministry truly begins. Now here's why that's so significant. In the verse immediately before our reading today, Jesus is in the Jordan River and a voice from heaven says, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. God announces not only to Jesus, but to everyone around, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Beloved One, that Jesus is the One with whom God is well pleased. As preacher and theologian Nadia Boltz Weber says, identity is always God's first move. But then, but then, as soon as God declares Jesus' identity, Jesus ends up in the wilderness. And think about this. He ends up there before he's the Jesus we hear so much about. He ends up in the wilderness, not yet a leader who calls people to come and follow him. He ends up in the wilderness, not yet the preacher who goes into faith communities of his own tradition and reinterprets holy words for a new time and place. He ends up in the wilderness, not yet the teacher who will sit atop the mountain or stand in the stern of a boat and tell stories and give instruction about being a disciple. He ends up in the wilderness, not yet the healer who has life flowing so strongly through him that even a touch from him will set people free from captivity or illness. Jesus will be all of those things. It's just that at this particular point that he ends up in the wilderness, he's not anything yet. To put it more simply, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness while he is in a particularly vulnerable place. After he's told who he is and what he's supposed to be, but before he has lived into any of it. Brene Brown is a scholar of vulnerability, and she teaches us that the root of vulnerable is the Latin vulnerare. It means to wound. And so to be vulnerable, she says, means that you are capable of being wounded or being open to attack or damage. God says to Jesus, you are my son, the beloved. 
And before anything else even has a chance to happen, there's the devil who shows up and says, well, if you are the son of God, if you are, are you? Am I? The way the gospel tells this story, we might actually expect Jesus' hair in the wilderness to still be wet from his baptismal swim. But you know it as well as I do. In our, in our most vulnerable of moments, it takes only a fraction of a second to begin questioning ourselves, to give in even just a little bit to self-doubt. That's the moment the devil is trying to capitalize on with Jesus in the wilderness. Now the story I'm about to tell you, let me put it this way, it is not flattering. We're still getting to know one another, Shandon, so I hope you will remember that I am telling you this story because I love Jesus that much. So back when I lived in Kansas City, I bought my first home in a neighborhood called Westwood. It was about 10 minutes away from Village Presbyterian Church. And shortly after I moved in, I discovered a little detail that had not shown up on any of the mortgage paperwork I had signed. I learned that my street in particular took holiday decorating very, very, very seriously. And at least in Kansas, the holiday decorating season begins with the fall harvest. I was unprepared for this. Now, I love Christmas lights, but I was unaccustomed to being utterly surrounded by scarecrows and lords and cornucopias that popped up on literally every porch by October 1st. Now, if I had been a more mature sort of individual, if I had been a more evolved human being, if... It is possible that none of this would have bothered me in the slightest. It's actually possible that I would have found it all delightful. But I was neither mature nor evolved. And I didn't just go to the store and buy some decorations. That would have been far too simple. Instead, I went to the crazy place in my brain and developed a complex. You are the only one with nothing in the yard. I told myself, your neighbors must think you are a total letdown. They are probably wishing right now that someone else, anyone else, anyone that had the good sense to put out corn and mums, they wish they had moved into your house. And then one day as Halloween crept closer, a beautiful big orange pumpkin showed up on my porch. I've already told you that I went to the crazy place. I'm gonna need you to keep that in mind for the rest of this story. I saw the pumpkin as I pulled into my driveway that evening, and I immediately thought to myself, well, isn't that just great? The neighbors are so tired of waiting on me to decorate, they've actually taken matters into their own hands. And I resented everything about that pumpkin. I left it on the porch, but every time I saw it, it told me what a failure of a homeowner I was. I started referring to it as the pumpkin of judgment, and I started placing silent bets about which of my neighbors had left it there. 
It was just days before Halloween when a church member, actually the chair of the search committee that had called me to village, stopped by my house. We were chatting in my front yard and she innocently said, oh, how do you like that pumpkin? And that was all I needed. With no further provocation, I said, you are never going to believe this. And I filled her in on all of the gory details about the pumpkin of judgment. I was so busy expressing my outrage that I didn't notice for quite some time just how quiet she had gotten. And finally, after what became an uncomfortably long moment of silence, I looked at her. And I said, you left the pumpkin for me, didn't you? I did, she said. I just wanted you to know someone was thinking about you. Oh. So here's the thing. That is a ridiculous story. It is an absolutely ridiculous story that points to something incredibly important. Throughout that entire ordeal, I gave in to the temptation to make that situation entirely, completely, 100% about me. I disregarded any possibility beyond my own experience and my own feelings. All I could see was a world that revolved entirely around me, where my neighbors had absolutely nothing better to do or think about than me and my house. And all of this meant that I was missing the important things, like the kindness of Lexa, the woman who actually gave me the pumpkin, and the exhaustion of the couple with three small children across the street, and the medication delivered to the single woman who lived on the corner, and the elderly parents who lived with the couple next door. I missed all of that. But part of the reason it's such a ridiculous story is because it's such a small example, right? The only thing is, friends, that for most of us, for most of us on most days, temptation shows up in seemingly small ways. It's running into the grocery store without a mask on, maybe because you think it unnecessary, maybe because you really did mean to wear it, but you forgot it on the kitchen counter and you only need that one thing anyways. It's nervous laughter, an inappropriate joke or silence in response to a racist comment. Maybe because you just don't want to start anything. Maybe because you don't actually know a helpful way to respond. It's not bothering to correct your colleague when you're giving credit for someone else's effort or not cleaning up after your dog when you take a walk or being short with the customer service agent on the telephone even though they are not the ones personally responsible for the flight cancellation policy. It's seeing yourself as the central character every moment of your life. It's all of us seeing ourselves as the central characters of every moment of our lives. Now Jesus, when he was confronted by the devil in the wilderness, he was vulnerable for all sorts of reasons. 
including this. He had been in the wilderness alone for 40 days and 40 nights. We are not made to be alone like that, not for that length of time. The story of creation actually makes this abundantly clear. It is not good that a human should be alone, God said. But we have been alone for a long time right now. We have been apart from one another for far more than 40 days and 40 nights. And we are vulnerable as individuals and as a community because of it. This is what being in the wilderness looks like. Now let me say this very clearly. I am not in any way suggesting we shun important pandemic safety precautions. I am suggesting we be aware of how it makes us even more vulnerable. I am suggesting we be even more vigilant than ever to guard against the sneaky ways the tempter tries to infiltrate our lives. Because it is one thing to be a Christian when it is convenient, when it is easy and makes us feel good. It is another thing entirely to be a Christian when it is hard, when it asks something of us, when it asks everything of us, when it asks us to give up our own ideas and agendas and preferences to make room for God's way in this world, when it asks us to get over our own fear so that we can get down to the work of doing justice and loving kindness and walking humbly with God, when it asks us to sacrifice something of ourselves for the greater good of the whole. Those are the moments when being Christian is hard. And those are the moments when being a Christian counts the most. You are my beloved son, God said to Jesus. With you, I am well pleased. If you are the Son of God, the devil said, if you are the Son of God. And the devil offered him food to fill his own hunger, and security to assure his own safety, and power to establish his own authority. But Jesus resisted. Three times he resisted, and even still it did not stop there. It was some three years later, after our scripture passage today, after Jesus was in fact the leader who called people to follow him, and after he was the preacher who reinterpreted holy words and the teacher who instructed the crowds and the healer who set people free, after he was everything God knew he could be, even after he was crucified and hanging on a cross, the words came again, if you are the Son of God. This time it was the crowds jeering at him. If you are the Son of God, come down from that cross. And you know, he could have. He absolutely could have. But he knew who he was. And so he resisted temptation yet again, refusing to save himself 
so that he might save us. If you are the Son of God, they said, if we are the children of God, how shall we live? Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.